Welcome to 60 Weeks, 60 Books, Week 25. This week's book is Strong Poison by Dorothy Sayers. It was a toss-up between Strong Poison and Gordy Knight, but ultimately the former pipped the latter to the post, as I'll explore. I came to read Sayers and develop an enduring love of crime novels in a roundabout way. Arguably, Sherlock Holmes could or should have featured earlier in this podcast, as between the ages of 8 and 12, along with Harriet the Spy and historical novels, I also read all the Sherlock Holmes stories more than once. A little while later, I came to the Bond novels. Another favourite series was the sequence of books written by Leslie Charters about the swashbuckling 1920s, 1930s man about town and solver of mysteries, Simon Templer, better known as The Saint, and inadequately portrayed in TV adaptations by both Roger Moore and Ian Ogilvy. Thanks to Humphrey Bogart, I also dipped my toes into the worlds of Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. In 1988, though, I was catapulted into a deeper exploration of crime fiction. The late 1980s were the heyday of the women's magazine, Cosmopolitan, Cosmo had been around quite a while, and then there came Elle, Company and Marie Claire. In addition to the tips on improving one's sex life, fashion spreads of things one never could or would wear to work, even if one could afford them, and 10 ways to lose £10 in 10 days, there were writing competitions. I never quite got my act together to enter them, except for one run by Company magazine. The call was out for women's crime stories. One Saturday morning, I woke up and the opening line was there. Then the opening scene and then the whole story followed that day. Box became a runner-up in the competition, so I received a small cheque and the story was published by Pandora Press in an anthology, Murder and Company. Much, much later, the story was adapted for Radio 4 and broadcast and earned me another welcome check, which I blew entirely on a beautiful image of a mountain in Iceland, which is hung now in four bedrooms on the wall on the side where I can see it as I sit in bed with coffee and a book on a weekend morning. Sadly, I have never been struck by so so much inspiration in such a useful fashion since, although I have written quite a few books in the intervening years. I think all of us finalists were invited to submit anything further that we wrote. And of course, I thought that this was my shot at becoming a best-selling crime writer. Up until then, romance was my genre of choice, but here was a gift of an opportunity. Thus began an intense period of reading as widely as possible in crime fiction written by women. I began with Golden Age writers, Nio Marsh, Josephine Tay, Gladys Mitchell. I had read most of the Agatha Christie's already. This was also the heyday of the BBC adaptations of the Marple books with the incomparable Joan Hickson in the eponymous role. And I knew already that Christie was not going to be the main stimulus. Around the same time, vying in popularity were the BBC adaptations of Sayers's books covering the romance between Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane, Strong Poison, Have His Carcass and Gordy Knight. I much preferred Peter Whimsey to either Poirot or Marple, but I dithered then and continued to dither between Peter Whimsey and Alfred, Cam- uh, Alfred Campion. Marjorie Allingham's Great Detective was apparently conceived as a parody of Peter Whimsey, but he very much developed a life and moral compass of his own. However, Campion has no equivalent to Harriet Vane, and that is the clincher for me. 
I dither between preferring strong poison, in which Whimsy falls in love with Harriet, and Gordianite, in which Harriet is central, and also she eventually accepts Whimsy's proposal. But I've chosen strong poison because it so exemplifies that pleasure of Sayers's style. One of the joys of Sayers is her sure grasp of dialogue, the slangy style of bright young things, the more mimsy style of older characters, the jokiness concealing deep sorrow at the heart of Whimsy's own register. At one point, Whimsy tells his man Bunter to stop being so Jeeves, a nod to Woodhouse's greatest creation, Bertie Wooster's man and frequent lifesaver, the inimitable, intelligent and imperturbable Jeeves. It is the signal to the reader that Whimsy is, as signposted by his name, whimsical, but he is also serious. The thing about Whimsy that I loved was his absolute passion for books. He is a collector of first editions, but he is also a genuine reader, as of course was Sayers herself. And the novels are full of allusions and throwaway references to a wide range of literature, both English and European. A feature I had forgotten about the Whimsy books, and about Strong Poison in particular, is how important single, middle-aged women are for Whimsy. I don't remember encountering Miss Clemson in her first incarnation in Unnatural Death, but in Strong Poison, she and her employee, Miss Murchison, are essential in uncovering the true identity of the murderer. Whimsley, Whimsy has established an agency run by Miss Clemson, officially a typing bureau for authors and men of science, unofficially an investigation agency in which women of, as Sayers put it, the class unkindly known as superfluous, conduct research and entrap potential blackmailers and con artists intent on preying upon vulnerable individuals, primarily women. Miss Murchison is sent to a solicitor's office as a temp, learns from one of Whimsy's less reputable acquaintances how to manipulate skeleton keys, and so accesses several key documents to provide a motive for the murder. And Miss Clemson herself is first instrumental as a juror in saving Miss Vane's life by refusing to agree to a guilty verdict. And then she hops off to the Lake District, where she pretends to be a medium with a spiritual familiar called Pongo, and tracks down the will which will finally expose the murderer and establish his guilt. Here we see middle-aged women depicted not as foolish or foggy, but as shrewd and capable, independent, independent-minded. Harriet Vane herself is a woman of strong principle and steely will. She refuses Sir Peter's proposals firmly until she is quite sure, first, that his passion for her is genuine, not that of a saviour, and second, that her own feelings for him are not clouded by gratitude for intervening in her seemingly inevitable pathway to the scaffold. What is interesting about Vane is that she is actually one of the first Mary Sues, the female characters who are a cipher for the author, a form of wish fulfilment rather than a true individual. Sayers admitted that Vane was modelled on her own career as both an academic and a novelist, and once the biographies were published after her death, it was clear that the affair that Harriet Vane has with the murder victim, Philip Boys was modelled on an unconsummated affair that Sayers herself had had with a man who was, surprise, surprise, 
condescending about her writing. He believed in free love and did not believe in marriage or having children. Sayers refused to consummate the relationship, so he left her, and then he returned to the US where he came from, and there married a woman with two children, contravening all of his principles entirely, much to Sayers' disgust. Despite, or perhaps because of being a thinly veiled version of Sayers herself, Harriet Vane is a terrific character, and the love story at the heart of Strong Poison is compelling. The next couple of novels Sayers wrote about the relationship between Whimsy and Vane are engaging, and round out Whimsy's personality, choices, and behaviour in a way that is plausible and page-turning. I think there are definitely better crime writers than Sayers, both male and female. Thinking of the writers who were either prominent or coming to prominence in the mid to late 1980s, there is an astounding roll call of wonderful writers. P.D. James, Ruth Rendell, who also wrote brilliant psychological thrillers as Barbara Vine, Minette Walters, Sue Grafton, Sarah Paretsky and Patricia Cornwall were all writers I hoovered up as I tried to perfect my own crime writing. I came up with a plot and brought an Amstrad on which morning after morning I cranked out 500 words, revised and edited over the weekends. I have no idea what happened to the hard copy I printed out in terrible dot matrix type, but I do remember setting the novel in the mean streets of Kentish Town where I then lived, trying hard to sustain a decent first-person narrative, starting out light-hearted and whimsical and ended up ending up descending into darker and darker places. The tone and the plot were not consistent, and although disappointed, I was not particularly surprised when agents and publishers alike passed on the book. Still, my love of a good mystery endures, and if I am going to be kept up all night by a great read, it is highly likely to be crime-related, even better if it is historical crime. Join me next week as I revisit the absolute joy of reading The Complete Mistress of the Historical Novel. Dorothy Dunnett.